whatever he says. And so I'd be the biggest hypocrite to say, you can't do this, no. But I did say to God, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> um, so that could just be my sermon. I mean, I could stop now because you guys are living what I'm talking. You listen. You pray. You seek counsel. You obey. And Matt and Becky and their family have done that, and they've done it right. You know, for six months now, I, I really didn't think I was going to do this. I thought Matt was going to say, you know what? I know now that this is where I belong. And so he comes to me and says, Shane, I, I know the Lord's calling us. And he can share some really interesting things about how they know the Lord's calling them. Um, but that's not what I expected him to say. But when he did, I said, and... Godspeed. Um, I, I want you to look at the book of Judges. We're going to be covering a whole lot of territory this morning in a short time. <clears throat> We're going to be wrapping up this series. We've got some exciting things happening in the near future, including the Bold Faith True Love series. It's going to start in April. Uh, the book of Judges, let me just kind of give you an overview. The book of Judges is the story of six major and eight minor judges. But when we use the word judge, don't think of Judge Weigel at district court or Judge O'Grady at the circuit court. The biblical judges were more like Afghani tribal leaders than they were like North American jurists. They didn't sit on a bench and swing a gavel. They marched on the ground and swung a sword. Now, when I say this is the story of six major and eight minor judges, that in itself is a little misleading. Judges is really the story of how Israel's failure to consecrate the promised land to God, that is to bring it under his rule, set the stage for her people to begin a sequence in which they drifted away from the Lord, returned to him, and then drifted away again. Each of the six major judges, and for that matter the eight minor judges, was at the center of a recurring cycle in which Israel falls away from God and into distress. Then God sends a deliverer, the people return to God for a time, and then fall away again. Now, if you read the entire book of Judges, which I would encourage you to do, you'll see an ominous pattern in that recurring cycle. With each successive judge, Israel falls further and doesn't return as far. By the time of the last and best known of the judges, the people of Israel don't return at all. I mean, it's fascinating to read. The best of the major judges comes first, and the least is written about him. The worst of the major judges comes last, and the most is written about him. Now, I said the judges were at the center of this cycle, which is true, but the center didn't hold. It kept moving. The judges kept moving further and further from God. Now, if you were to write your own story, and by the way, it is being written. Look at Revelation chapter 21 sometime. Would we see the same cycle reproduced in your life? Coming to God, falling away, coming back, falling further. There is an implicit but very intentional warning built right into the framework of the book of Judges. People who repeatedly come to God only to fall away from him and then come back again 
will find that each time they come back, their relationship with God has been weakened and doesn't last as long. And if they're not careful, there will come a time when they fall away and don't come back again. If you find yourself in that cycle, I want you to know that there's a reason for it and there's a way out of it. And we'll see more about that as we go on. The author of the book of Judges prepared us for this sad, deteriorating cycle in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Let me read those for us. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived, for the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. That's the book of Judges in a nutshell, and those two verses. The judge Gideon, at whom we looked last week, appeared right in the middle of this deteriorating cycle. He did good things, but was unfamiliar with God's word, and he made no attempt to learn it. While he rescued Israel from the Midianites, which was a good thing, he also ensnared them in idolatry, which was a disaster. The next of the major judges was a man named Jephthah. God used him as he did all the judges. God can use everyone will be used by God. God can use anyone. But Jephthah was a reckless man who disregarded even the most fundamental laws of God. And then came Samson, the Samson, the last and best known of the judges, who was in many ways the worst of the lot. Samson violated his vows repeatedly and violated God's law over and over again. And this is one of the things that we see about the judges. As they get further and further away from the time that Israel entered the promised land, they become less and less familiar with the instructions that God had given. A number of the judges were woefully ignorant of what God had said, of God's word. And that had devastating consequences for them and for their people. Joshua had been told to meditate on God's law day and night, that is to hold it in his mind, and not let it depart from his mouth, to keep it on his tongue. But the later judges didn't have the book either in their minds or on their mouths. They didn't know it. Too often we're like that. We think of the Bible as a kind of book-length list of requirements, something like a credit card agreement. And who wants to read one of those? But the Bible is a book about how to live with God in this world. Or better, it's about what God has done and is doing so that he can live with us, both in this world and the one to come. In the long run, it's the most practical book you'll ever read. Now remember Judges 2 in this repeating and deteriorating cycle. The first step in the cycle, and I'll give you each step in the cycle. The first step in the cycle, the people forsake God in favor of some other power that they think will improve their lives. The second step, the Lord gives Israel into the hands of her oppressors. Sometimes for many years. The third step, in their misery, the people cry out to God for help. The fourth step, the Lord sends a judge to deliver them. Fifth step, the spirit of the Lord at some point comes on that deliverer in powerful ways. Sixth step, the oppressor is defeated and driven back. Seventh step, the land has rest. 
for so many years. And then the cycle repeats itself. When things are going well for a while, the people forsake God in favor of some other power, and it all starts over again. By the time we get to Samson, Israel has been suffering under oppression for 40 years at the hands of the Philistines. But by now, the cycle has deteriorated. Remember the cycle, we see it every time, but it keeps deteriorating each time. The cycle has deteriorated to the point that the Israelites no longer cry out to God. One of the worst things about living away from God is that you get used to it. You get used to being controlled by someone else or some other thing than God. You get used to the sin, the fear, the hopelessness. It's a terrible place to be in. The most dreadful consequence of sin is not some intense or severe punishment. It's more sin. The first time we see Samson, this is chapter 14, he's chasing a woman. In fact, almost every time we see Samson, he's chasing a woman. And it's not just a woman, it's a Philistine woman whom he insists on marrying. Listen to the first two verses of chapter 14. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His parents don't approve, but neither they nor he seem to be aware of God's explicit command to the Israelites issued repeatedly over and over again against marrying the people of the land. Moses had warned, when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, that is, they worship their idols, they'll lead your sons to do the same. And that had proved true again and again. But Samson was either unaware of God's command, or he simply ignored it, as if it didn't apply to him. He was going to do what he wanted to do. Now, Scripture leaves no doubt that Samson was empowered by the Spirit of God, But it's equally clear that he was led by his own desires. He had spiritual power without spiritual direction, which is a very dangerous thing. Whether it was the desire for sex or for food or for revenge, Samson's desires were stronger than he was. They dragged him mercilessly into one bad decision after another. There are many morals that a preacher could pull from the story of Samson. But that, I don't think, was ever the writer's intent. These stories were not intended to be a delivery system for some moral like Aesop's fables are. He's not relating these stories in order to say to us, and the biblical moral of the story is, he that laughs best laughs last. No, the Samson story is a warning, and it's a dire one. Samson is representative of the people of of Israel, is the perfect example of what happens when people ignore God's authority over their lives. If you will not have God and his word as your authority, you'll have something else. Probably whatever desire is making the loudest demand at the moment in your life. Samson went through life determining right and wrong and deciding his course of action based entirely on his feelings. Sex is right because Samson wants it. Breaking vows is okay because they conflict with Samson's desires. Hurting people is all right because they hurt Samson, or he felt like they did. Samson lived in this swirling chaos of emotions and was ruled by them. That's a terrible state to be in. 
And yet it's something that our culture espouses as desirable. Samson was a Nazarite who was supposed to live by the Nazarite vows. Instead, he lived by the Samsonite code, as the scholar Kalos and Younger put it. What's right in my eyes, I do. That was Samson's life. And if you think about it, it is also the sub-theme of most of the critically acclaimed movies of our time. That's what our world tells us to do. The only way to find yourself is to pursue your desires, whatever the cost, however it falls out for everybody else. That's the engine that drives our economy, structures our relationships, shapes our legislation. And it is the polar opposite of the way of Jesus. Samson tried to fill himself with every selfish pleasure he could find. Jesus emptied himself to save every person that was lost. Now, Samson wasn't alone. He was a child of his age, just like we're children of our age. While the people around him lacked his ability, they adopted his approach. The scriptures report that under most of the other judges, Israel returned to God, at least temporarily. But that's not said of the people in Samson's time. They had drifted away from God, and Samson didn't bring them back. Now, with the end of the story of Samson, I know I'm covering a lot of ground here. The repeating cycle of falling away and coming back has wound down. It's deteriorated completely. There's no coming back. After Samson's death, Israel went from bad to worse. Prior to this point, the people of Israel had repeatedly given in to the temptation to worship the idols that the Canaanites made. But now things have changed. In the final few chapters of Judges, the people of God themselves make their own idols and worship them. They've forgotten God's word, contaminated their religion, and messed up their lives. Chapter 17 and 18 tell the story of a man named Micah. Our author introduces to him, him to us by telling us that he stole money from his own mother. He's a thief. And the worst kind. He eventually confesses his sin, but his well-meaning mother is so ignorant of God's word that she consecrates the stolen money to the Lord in order to fund the manufacture of an idol. It feels to her like a religious thing to do, so she does it. Her thinking was so muddled that she thought the Lord would be pleased by that. Her son makes the idol. He wraps it in an ephod, a trick that he learned from Gideon and places it in a specially built shrine. He then installs his son as priest to the God of the new shrine. And instead of being outraged, the people who know them are envious. This mother and son continually violate God's commands. Sometime later, the son meets a Levite and tries to hire him to take his son's place as his shrine priest. His son probably wasn't producing the results that he thought his idol ought to be producing. And the shocking thing is that the Levite agrees to take the position. Not even the Levites, schooled in God's law, remembered God's instructions. And while these people do one sinful thing after another, they never doubt that what they're doing is right and good. They don't want anybody judging them. 
And the biblical commentary on this insanity is found in the sixth verse of chapter 17. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. If you acknowledge no authority over you, you end up being your own authority. If you have no king, you're going to be your own king by default. Remember that verse. It expresses the theme that's at the heart of the book of Judges. Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. The cycle of falling away and returning that dominates the story from chapter 3 to chapter 16 is now disintegrated, and chaos has taken its place. Each new episode in the rest of the book presents a frightening growth in evil, and the interval between those episodes grows shorter and shorter. Now evil's happening more and more quickly. When everyone does as he sees fit, everything is destined to fall apart, whether it's in a family or a church or a nation. By this point, people were operating in total disregard for the Lord's instructions. They didn't know them. They didn't care to know them. A Levite is serving as a family priest to aid a family in the worship of an idol, which is a violation of the very first of the Ten Commandments. This is something that people of an earlier generation could not even have imagined would happen in Israel. Their confusion was so complete that the man who made the idol and installed the priest could say without the least sense of irony, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. It was madness. In chapter 18, things go from bad to worse. Israelites from the tribe of Dan steal the idol that this man named Micah had made, and they kidnap his priest. They wipe out a peaceful town and set up their own shrine for idol worship. They then commission another descendant of Moses, another Levite, and his sons to be their priests. See, it's not that the people weren't religious. They were. They even thought of themselves as the people of God. It's interesting to me that they use the name of the Lord, Yahweh, 18 times in the last few chapters of Judges. But their religion has almost nothing in common with the faith of their forefathers. And yet they have no inkling of the fact. If in chapter 8 things went from bad to worse, chapter 19 they go from worse to unspeakable. Travelers stop to spend the night in a town called Gibeah in the south of Israel and are accosted by men who want to sodomize them. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah all over again, but this time it's happening in the heart of the promised land. Terrible things can happen in the promised land and in the promised life when people make a treaty with their sins and settle down to live at peace with the powers that oppose God. The attempted rape of these men, though appalling, was not the end of the story. The same men raped two young women and left one of them dead. Her husband, heartless fellow, he let them do it to save himself, cut her body in 12 pieces and sent the pieces to tribal leaders across the various regions of Israel. When they saw it, they were shocked and said, such a thing has never been done in Israel. But when everyone does 
as he sees fit, people see lots of things that have never done, been done before. When the king doesn't rule, everyone becomes his own king, and then unthinkable evils begin to happen. The final two chapters recount more violence, more kidnappings, and even an attempt at genocide. And these things are being done by God's people against God's people. They're trying to wipe their own brothers and sisters off the face of the earth. Now, to what does our author attribute the evil that is happening within the people of God? Listen to the refrain that our author plays again and again and again. Chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king. Judges 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit, or as the King James translates it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. If you don't have a king... Guess who fills the role? You become your own sovereign. And what can you do but that which is best in your own eyes? Isn't that the place where our country and large segments of the church currently reside? From same-sex marriage to filing tax forms to fighting wars... Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. And we don't want anyone judging us. The high and mighty don't pay taxes, so why should I? Divorcing this guy so that I can marry that one seems right to me. Doesn't God want us to be happy? Things are different nowadays. Everybody has sex before they get married. It's no big deal. Our nation is as close to the everyone did what was right in his own eyes mentality as people have ever been. And what is right in one's own eyes tends to be whatever one's hormones or bank account or peers or Madison Avenue happens to be telling him at the moment. Now, why is all this important to us? It's important to us because what happened to Israel as a country can happen to us as individuals. People can talk about God like the Israelites did in our text without knowing what he said and without owning him as king. It's their feelings, what older generations called their passions, that rule their lives. Lives that are disintegrating around them and they don't know why. They may even blame God for not doing something to help them. Is it too late for things to change? No. No, it's not too late. Something can be done. They can submit to the king. We can submit to our king. This is good news. This is gospel. There is a king, and he's going to make everything right. We can acknowledge him today and become his citizens, and he'll begin by making things right in us, in the promised life. Would anyone deny that our world is messed up? Beijing can't breathe. They're pouring so many pollutants into the air. In North Korea, a 28-year-old kid is pointing nuclear missiles at us and threatening a preemptive strike. 
Africa's aflame with ethnic violence, the AIDS epidemic, and religious persecution. In the U.S., we can't find money to help the poor, but we have a pornography industry that generates something like $8 billion of business a year. There's a worldwide sex slave trade that equals and perhaps exceeds the horrors of the past. Something is terribly wrong. The world needs a king. And would anyone deny that our own lives are messed up? Our friendships are shallow, but our addictions run deep. Relationships keep crumbling. We're crushed by anxiety. And the only cure we can think, think of is distraction. We need a king. Well, we have one. It's his arrival that we celebrate next week on Palm Sunday, the arrival of the king. This is the story of judges, and I fear it's the story of America, and I hope it's not the story of your life. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king. In those days, Israel had no king. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. With that dirge as a background, the refrain of Palm Sunday sounds all the sweeter. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That's good news. We have a king and he will lead us. Let's follow him. Let's pray. God, save us from ourselves, from our self-righteousness and foolishness and sinfulness, and make us all together yours for Jesus' sake. Amen.